But if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles, Isaiah 40. We're going to reference that real quick right out of the gate. Um, again, what I wanted to do this morning, uh, we've had our Christmas service. And last week we really, uh, we were in Colossians chapter 3. But did something really different last week, including me preaching a three-point sermon. Uh, I was joking with uh, Freddie Gardner Saturday, and he, he said, were your points alliterated? I said, no, they weren't alliterated. And so we both agreed, I've, I've got a lot to learn. I got the three-point sermon down, but it wasn't alliterated. All my words didn't start with the same letter. Uh, but uh, we've had those two services, so we've had a little break in our Genesis study. And I know that I've mentioned it already a few different times, but once we get to the call of Abram, who will become Abraham, um, there's going to be many, many cross-references, many, many gospel connections, uh, many things that point and tie directly to Christ, and there's going to be, uh, it's going to be a very exciting time. The, the Genesis study up to this point has been very exciting. But once we get to Abraham, that's, we're talking about the birth of Israel as a nation, uh, and, and what God is, is planning for his people and the things that will come thereafter. And so it's going to be, um, really, really fast paced, if you will. Um, so before we get there, since we've had those couple of Sundays in between, I wanted to do a type of a recap. It's not going to be just a straight recap where we're just talking about everything we've covered so far. I've got some some of those big ideas that we've been putting in place as we've gone through the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis. Um, some of the really, really big ideas. Because remember, the book of Genesis is not just necessarily a story of beginnings for God's people. The book of Genesis is, is the story of beginnings for, for all of creation, for all mankind. As believers, as Christians, when, when people ask us the question, well, well, where did humans come from? Well, how did the earth begin? How did creation begin? How did it all, how did it all come to be? Genesis is where we ought to turn to to teach people and share with people where we all came from, where all of creation came from, what the point of all creation is, uh, this should be our go-to as believers. This shapes our worldview. Do we really believe in a God who created everything out of nothing and He spoke it all into existence? Yes. Do we really be believe that He created all things in six literal days and rested on the seventh? Yes. Do we really believe that all mankind ultimately can trace their lineage back to Two individuals, Adam and Eve. Yes, these things are very important for us as believers. It, it lays a very, very strong and firm foundation for our worldview. And it helps us understand why did God create man? Why is it important that we're made in his image? What's the significance of these things? It helps us understand that, oh, well, well it makes perfect sense if God created all things and he has the authority over all things then when God says something is is to be done or when God says something is not to be done he is worthy to be obeyed he is worthy to be listened to because he is our very source of life we would not exist if he did not 
create us and bring us into existence. So he has the authority. We answer to him because we are his creation and we exist for his glory. So that's the, the, the style or type of a recap that I want to do this morning is just bring out some very important key truths that as we go through not only the rest of Genesis, but throughout the rest of Scripture, these truths will be, they'll resurface again and again and again and again within Scripture. And it, it's to remind us these things are true. These things are true. Don't forget these things. Don't neglect these truths. Right? And so we're going to talk about um, two, two or three truths about God and a couple of truths about man. But really, the two truths that I wrote down about man, they can really be combined into one. So let's, let's start with God. Truth number one. And this is a truth that I sincerely believe with every fiber of my being that when believers see and comprehend and rest in this truth, that that is exactly what God grants to that believer is rest. What what can the believer remind himself of when, when times are troublesome? When, when the believer gets exhausted, when the believer feels fatigued, when the believer feels like nothing is going right at any given moment. What are the truths that we can remind ourselves of when we feel as though we, if you've ever felt like you're the only person in your family or the only person at work or the only person around that you're, you're sincerely pursuing God and the things of God and you feel alone, you feel like you're an island, you feel like you're isolated and you just need some encouragement, you need some reassurance, you need something to put the wind back in your sails, so to speak. What can we remind ourselves when, when we're heartbroken, when we, when we have suffered great loss, when we're just hurting, when we're in pain? The truth that God is sovereign. Is what anchors us. And what sustains us. I've mentioned this quote before. But, but Charles Spurgeon said that. God's sovereignty is the pillow. Upon which the believer. Rests his head at night. If we're broken. If we're hurting. If we're struggling. If we're angry. If we're bitter. If we're, if we're just confused. And don't know what in the world's going on. Whatever it may be. To know that God is sovereign and He is always working His eternal purpose in all things. And for His children, He's working that eternal purpose and that eternal will for our good. Should anchor our souls and give us rest and give us the confidence that, that come what may, if God is for us, if the sovereign God of all creation is for us, who can be against us? But let's consider from Genesis, these first few chapters that we've covered, what God's sovereignty looks like. Who hindered God from creating everything out of nothing? Who hindered God from speaking all things into existence? No one, because He's sovereign. He has the freedom to do and to act as He wills. 
He alone can bring about all of his eternal purposes and no one or no thing can stand in his way. Nothing can hinder him. Think about that. The absolute freedom and the absolute power possessed by God alone where he can literally speak and things come into into existence and all creation obeys him. Who hindered God or what hindered God from creating things as he saw fit to create them? Nothing. So right out of the gate, we see his eternal power and his divine nature. God is sovereign. He can do as he pleases and he does do as he pleases. With the law, you say, wait a minute, we hadn't gotten to Moses and the Ten Commandments yet. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what he told Adam. You will eat freely. You can eat freely of every tree in the garden. But of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That's a law. That's a command. Who did God take counsel with to say, well, should I give them a law? Can I give them a law? Is it good for me to give them a law? Is it good for me to tell Adam he can't eat of this one tree? With whom did God take counsel? No one. He is God. Amen, Ren. He gave the law. He gave the command. He created Adam and Eve. All of it. And already all things are working according to his eternal purpose and his eternal plan. There's no one that God took counsel with. There's no one that God has to ask for advice. He is free to do as he pleases. And what about grace? What about his sovereign his sovereignty in grace? Adam and Eve rebelled. Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree that they were commanded, don't eat from that tree. And the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And in that moment, God would have been perfectly just to wipe them out, to judge them fully, to judge them completely, to cause them to cease from existing. But instead, he was gracious and made a covering of skin for them. God, who is just and holy, yet perfectly free to act in grace and mercy. Yet still being just because those sins along with all of the sins of all who would ever believe were perfectly punished and perfectly judged in the person of Jesus Christ who would come later. And even that person of Jesus Christ is pointed to in that account of the fall because God told the serpent, your head will be crushed. God sovereignly free to have mercy on whom he has mercy. To bestow grace. To show his steadfast love that endures forever. To display that love however he sees fit to display it. To give grace however he sees fit to bestow grace. What about the flood? Who hindered God from opening up the heavens? From opening up the depths. Who or what hindered God from completely destroying all of mankind, all of creation, except for the souls of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives? Who hindered God? Who stayed God's hand in that act of judgment? 
no one and no thing. God sovereignly free to bring a worldwide flood whenever He so pleases. But yet after the flood, giving Noah the promise, never again will I destroy the world with a flood. Well, what if nature, what if Mother Nature all of a sudden decided, hey, I'm going to flood the world again. Can creation go against God's decree? Can creation go against God's promise? No, because creation answers to God. He is sovereign. He has the authority. Creation answers to Him. When God says, I will never again flood the world, we can rest in that because He alone has the power to withhold the waters from the world. And Babel. When man said, let us have a great city and build a tower to the heavens, who hindered God from coming down and confusing the languages of the people and dispersing them where He willed? Who or what hindered God? And the answer is, nobody and no thing. Even though man said, let us do this, did man's plans, did man's desires, did man's will hinder God from doing as He purposed? No. And that's just in the few first few chapters of Genesis. Clearly displayed, clearly seen that God is sovereign to do and to will as He pleases with all of His creation. With the inhabitants of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. And that is something that the believer we should draw great rest. But also great confidence in. Only a God who is sovereign. Can be trusted to keep his word. Can be trusted to keep his promises. Namely that promise that says. For those that love me and are called according to my purposes. All things work together for good. If God was not sovereign, if God was not reigning over all things at all times and working things according to His plan, how could we trust that He was working all things together for good if indeed He was not sovereignly reigning? But praise God that He is. And what is the end goal of all of this? What is God's great eternal purpose and plan? Well, on Christmas Day, we were in Colossians 1 and we talked about the fact that it is Christ who will have preeminence in all things. In Ephesians 1, as we've referenced a few different times, in Ephesians 1, we see that it was the Father's will for at the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. So God has sovereignly ordained and orchestrated all things so that the end result will be that His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, will have the preeminence in all things that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and He will have the glory over all creations because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things both now and forever. Amen. And God has been sovereignly orchestrating that and, and, and bringing about all things whatsoever come to pass since the beginning. <clears throat> now that's grand scale. So let, let's, let's bring it to us today. You are not here by accident. If God is sovereign. 
then all things that have happened in your life are part of His good purposes in your life. If you have confidence that you belong to God, that you are His child today, then you can have the confidence that all things that have happened in your life have happened for good. Even the stuff that hurts, even the things that are painful, even the things that were gut-wrenching, was God working in your life to shape you and to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. And you can have that confidence. You weren't, think about it. You could have been born to any set of parents on earth. But you were born to the parents that you do have. You could have any sibling group in the world, but you have your sibling group. You could have been born at any spot on earth. But many of you were actually born either here or a stone's throw away from here. And all of that was for a God-appointed purpose. Some of you may have attended Mendy's your whole life. For many, many years. Or some of you have maybe only been attending Mindy's for a few months or a year or so. And all of that. Why did you end up here? Why did you come here? Why did God bring you here? For His good purposes. Even if you're unsaved. And you're here today. Why has God brought you to a place where you will hear truth proclaimed and you will be pointed to Jesus Christ and you'll be pointed to the gospel, the preaching of the cross. Why did God bring you here as an unsaved individual? Because He is merciful and He is gracious and His desires for you to hear the truth today. So God is sovereign and the end result of that will be that He will accomplish His purpose, namely that Christ will have preeminence in all things. And that all things will be united in Him. God is just and gracious. We've already covered that one a little bit in the first point that we, that we talked about. All sin will be judged. God is a just God. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot ignore sin. He can't just cover His eyes and pretend that that sin didn't happen. He's a holy and a just God. But at the same time, He is a Gracious God who rejoices in the redemption and the salvation of sinners. So how can he be both? God is just in the sense that all sin, every sin that has ever been committed, every sin that will ever be committed will be judged. Ultimately, either the sins of an individual were paid for and covered by Christ on the cross or the sins of an individual will be paid for Within or by that individual. By an eternity in hell. But all sin will be judged. God is a just God. But he is a gracious and a merciful God. How so? Because the sins of many. The sins of all who will believe. Were paid for. And punished upon the cross. Which is gracious and gracious and merciful. Because those for whom Christ died will inherit eternal life. When what they deserve so rightfully and so justly is judgment and death and condemnation. Yet through Jesus Christ alone, 
they will receive no condemnation and they will have eternal life through Christ the Son. So God is just and He is gracious. And we see that within the first few chapters of Genesis. We see it at the fall. Again, Adam and Eve, they rebelled, they disobeyed God. What did God do? He made coverings of skin for them. But something else had to die. He made coverings of skin. The life of another had to be taken to show that there was this atoning sacrifice. We see it in the flood. God is just. He is holy. He judges the world. He judges sin. But we see that He is gracious and merciful. He preserves life. He preserves Noah and his three sons and their wives. God is gracious. But yet, He is a holy and a just God. And you will see that repeatedly throughout the scriptures over and over again because God is unchanging. God is who He is. In our lives today, again, when it comes to our personal sins, our individual sins that we have committed, that we have done, either those sins have already been judged and accounted for in the person and work of Jesus Christ and we are set free from the bondage of sin and we will reign with Him forever or we will answer for our own sin and they will be judged and they will be punished in us as we are cast away from God for eternity. But rest assured, God is just. If you are here today and you are confident and you are sure, you say, I I know that I'm saved. The Spirit testifies within me, Abba, Father. Then understand that the only reason you have any confidence in that whatsoever is because God is gracious and He is merciful. And He has given you the new birth. And He has saved you through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He has raised you up through His Spirit and He has sealed you with His Spirit. God is faithful. God is faithful. And namely, what I want us to remember with that one, God is faithful is, even when His people are faithless and rebel against Him and transgress and go against Him over and over and over and over again, God is faithful. Why is that so important? If God has promised that all who believe will be be saved, He's going to be faithful to deliver on that promise. If God has has promised that all those who are His will be saved and will be with Him in glory, He will be faithful to that promise. If God has promised that that Christ is returning and and will judge the world, and only those who are His will be saved, but the world as we know it will melt away with fervent heat and there will be a great day of judgment, and then there will be a new heavens and a new earth, then we know He's going to be faithful To follow through on that. He's not slow. Or slack. Concerning his promises. If God has promised us life. If God has promised that he will sustain us to the end. So that we will be presented holy and blameless before him in glory. If we have these promises from his word. We can rest assured that he is faithful.
when we have His Word that the head of the serpent has been crushed, that Christ has come and sin and death have been defeated, we can rest assured all of that occurred, all of that has come to pass because God is faithful. And also that's directly tied into the fact that God is sovereign. Because all of that took place over the span of many, many years. Who hindered God? Or what hindered God from sending His Son to crush the head of the serpent? Nothing. Who or what hinders God from saving that which is His own? Nobody and no thing. God is faithful. God is faithful. So what happens when God's people are not faithful back to Him? What happens when God's people stray or they do their own thing? Well, God chastises those that He loves. And the end of that chastisement, the result of that chastisement is purity, righteousness, holiness, sanctification. But rest assured, God is faithful and He will finish that which He has started. God will finish that which He has started in you if you are a believer. And God will finish that which He has started among His people. And God will finish that that which He has started from creation to the end of the age. And Jesus Christ will have preeminence in all things. So now let's look at man. And just to see how many of us are awake, I will ask, from what you do remember so far of our study in Genesis, what has mankind's track record looked like up to this point? Bleak? Is that what you said? Okay, we'll take it. Bleak. Does anybody else want to add any words to that or any thoughts to that? Failure? Sinful. Put simply, sinful. Because we're sinful, the outlook looks bleak sometimes. Because we're sinful, we fail. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? You say, Caleb, surely you've got to know that that is not going to make any of us feel good. To remind us all that mankind across the board, from creation, even up until now, that mankind is sinful and we fall short and left to our own devices it looks pretty bleak and left to our own devices we're a bunch of sinners who fail and fall short of the glory of God surely you must know that that's not going to make us feel good well ultimately my aim is not to make you feel good but yes we would say that that's that's the bad news That has to be understood before we can really see just how good the good news and the glory of God through His Son Jesus Christ really is. When when we say as believers we need a Savior. When we say as believers that lost people that they need a Savior. We've got to understand just how great that need really is. It's not like a need like, oh well, I've got a pair of shoes on. They're starting to get holes in them. I need a new pair of shoes. No, that doesn't quite hit the mark. Or, I haven't had a good square meal in a month. You know, we're barely making ends meet. 
I haven't just had a good full meal in a while. I've been making sure that the family's fed. I, I need a good meal. No, that's still not. No, I hadn't had water in four days, in five days. I haven't had anything to drink. I need some water. Still not getting the point. Mankind needs a savior to the extent that man will always fall short of the glory of God. Mankind is born in sin due to the sin of Adam. Mankind is is hopeless. Is hopeless when it comes to salvation apart from Jesus Christ. You take Jesus Christ out of the equation, all of mankind is headed for hell. And that is as bleak as it could possibly get. You remove Jesus from the equation, no one is saved. When we say we need a Savior, it is to the extent that our only hope of salvation, our only hope of being justified before a holy God rests in the person and the work. Of Jesus Christ. Were it not for Jesus. Not one individual. Not one individual. Would be justified. Before a holy God. And we would all. Answer for our own sin. Which were, which would result. In all of mankind. Being eternally separated. From a holy God. Separated and in hell. For eternity. We need. A savior. You say, why is it good for us to remind ourselves of that? Because even on our best day, even in our best hour of life, even in our best minute of life, we're not good enough and we fall short of the glory of God. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We cannot meet His standard. There must be Another, there must be grace and mercy. And praise God, we read from Scripture that absolutely, it is by grace we are saved through faith. Were it not for the grace and the mercy of a sovereign God who bestows that as He sees fit, and He is able and He is capable to show grace and to show mercy, and He is able to display that. If it were not for that grace being displayed and being given through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, there would be no hope of salvation. Why? Because man will always fall short of the glory of God. We choose sin. Even Adam. Let's bring this back to these first few chapters of Genesis. Even Adam. Created in an upright state, did not know what sin was. Had no preconceived notion of sin. Chose to rebel against his creator. Cain. After his offering was not found acceptable in the sight of God, instead of offering what was acceptable in the sight of God, he decided, well, I'll just kill my brother instead. And from him, we have Lamech and that lineage. And then Noah. Now Noah is from the line of Seth. We know that Noah found grace or found favor in the eyes of God. 
And Noah and his family were spared. But even Noah shortly after they got off the ark. Partook a little too much of the fruit of the vine. And was naked uncovered in his tent. Babel. The great wickedness that took place at Babel. Like we talked talked about a few weeks ago. The fact that that idea was even conceived. And that all the people of the earth were together. In that idea. When God had said plainly. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Be dispersed, fill the earth. And they said, no, let us all stay here. We're going to have one language. We're all going to be right here in this spot. We're not going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're going to stay right here. And just with that one fact alone, that proves that the entire city and tower of Babel was an act of rebellion against God. Man always falls short. We cannot look to ourselves for salvation. We cannot look to ourselves. And say, Well I've just got to make myself better. I've got to get my life right. And then I'll go to God. No. We can't make ourselves right. We can't make ourselves better. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. So it's good to remind ourselves. Of who we are apart from Christ. Sinful Wretches, guilty before God. It's good to remind ourselves of that to the extent that it points us right back to Christ. And we say, that's right. I have a great need for Christ. And Christ has been given. God is gracious. God is faithful. I have a great need for a Savior. And Christ is that great and perfect Savior. So that it that actually keeps our focus off of ourselves. That keeps our eyes off of ourselves. And keeps our eyes and our hearts fixed upon Him. Which is where they ought to be to begin with. Like we talked about last week. Set your hearts and minds upon the things of God. Things above. I said these two go together. Man sins, man falls short. That was the other thing I was going to say. Man cannot keep. Or meet God's holy standard. What is God's standard? Perfection. That is why when Jesus Christ came. And he said. I haven't come to destroy the law. Or to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Jesus Christ is the only one. Who has ever met God's holy standard. Christ kept and fulfilled the law. He's the only one to ever do it. Christ as a man. Could rightly stand before God justified. But what did he do with that perfect sinless life? He laid it down as a sacrifice, as an offering, an atoning sacrifice. So that his righteousness, his obedience, his beauty is credited to our account. And we get the credit for his obedience and his righteousness. Wow. If any of us are honest, we would say we haven't just broken God's commandment or God's law once. We've broken it repeatedly. Throughout our entire lives. And the miracle. That Christ's righteousness. And Christ's obedience. Who has a spotless. Sinless record. That that is credited to our account. By grace through faith. That's the gospel. You say how could I ever be made right with God. Jesus Christ alone. By faith in the son. That all who believe in Him will receive eternal life. 
that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. As you have heard me explaining this and, and, and talking through this, I know I haven't asked you to turn to, to, to any scriptures up to this point. We've been, I've been referencing scriptures and pointing back to Genesis and just quoted from Corinthians and I've, I've quoted from different places and I'm sure that, that you have caught, caught that. And so the last thing that I want to mention is this. All of scripture is one cohesive story. Of God's redemptive purposes for his people and for the glory of Christ his son. From Genesis to Revelation. And all of these are so important for us to consider as we continue our study through Genesis. Once we get to Abram and his call and and we go through the rest of, of all of Genesis. But again, not just Genesis, the rest of all of scripture. God is sovereign. He is just and He is gracious. He will judge and He will save. He will pour out His wrath and He will protect from His wrath. He is faithful. Even when God's people are at their worst, He is still faithful to keep His promises and to keep His people. What does mankind look like throughout all of Scripture? Here's a spoiler alert because we've only been through Genesis so far. What does mankind look like throughout all of Scripture? I hate to break it to you. Mankind still looks sinful. Falls short of the glory of God a lot. But here's one thing we did not say about man. God will graciously use sinful man to accomplish His eternal purposes. And for His people, God uses sinful men and women to proclaim His excellencies and to proclaim the glory and to proclaim the gospel so that more sinners will be brought in and saved. And so we do hold to the fact that no, we shouldn't just walk around beating ourselves up all the time, but we should understand this. Any good that comes out of us, any good that that proceeds forth from our lives is not us, but it is Him who works within us. The life that we now live is not us, but it is Christ who lives within us. So yes, God does use broken and sinful people to accomplish His purposes. And when it comes to those that are saved, He uses broken, sinful, redeemed people to go and proclaim His excellencies and preach the foolishness of the cross and to proclaim the glories of the kingdom and to call men and women to repentance and faith. And through that, And through that, He causes the new birth in a multitude of others. And you'll see that all throughout Scripture. Because Scripture is one great big story of God's redemptive purpose for His people and for all of creation. The reason that that's important. We hear a lot of things said about the Bible. Perhaps you've heard that The Bible is God's love letter to us. Perhaps you've heard that the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. And you use it as an acrostic. Bible. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Perhaps you've heard that the Bible is is our 
it's our handbook, it's our God book, it's our it's our teaching source that God has left for His people. That it's a it's a good God book, a good handbook to live your life by. Here's what Scripture truly is, and even this is an overly simplified definition, but. Scripture is God's revelation of Himself to His creation. Which clearly proclaims the preeminence of Jesus Christ the Lord and His glory. That's what the Word of God is. It's not... Does it include stories and narratives of God's love for His people? Yes. Is the Bible God's love letter to us? No. That's an overly sentimental way to look at it. That's a, that's a romanticized way to look at it. Basic instructions before leaving earth? That's much greater than that. It's the one true creator's personal revelation to his people. This is how God has revealed himself to us. It's not just basic instructions. It's a command. Repent and believe. That's a command. You must be born again. That's a rock solid truth. It's not just basic instructions. It's the revelation of our creator. The revelation of the one true God. And the revelation that all things will be united in his son in Jesus Christ. And Christ will have preeminence. A handbook? It's a whole lot more than a handbook. It's truth. It's our only source of absolute objective truth. Because if God who has created all things has spoken. Then what he has spoken is true. And anything that goes against that. Anything that that contradicts that. Anything that muddies the waters is false. Because he alone is true. There is a way in which we read scripture sometimes that almost has God. It's like God's as we read scripture, it's like, okay, well, God wants to do this, but he's fighting against man or God wants to do this, but his people won't let him. There's a way in which to read scripture that has God trying to accomplish his will in a back and forth with man or a back and forth with Satan. Like, Who's going to win? You know, Satan, Satan had a had a good punch here, but then God had a good punch here and it's a back and forth and. It's not how we ought to read Scripture. All of those views must be rejected as, as poor ways to study the Scripture. There is no back and forth. Scripture is God's revelation of this is what has happened, this is what will happen. Scripture details God's sovereign will being played out and He is never once in danger of failure or uh, even as sinful man is acting freely in their slavery to sin, they are still acting freely. But God is never in danger of failure. God is never in danger of, of having to, to reassess the situation and come up with a plan B or a plan C. From the beginning, God has been accomplishing all that He intends. And all that He intends, yes, it includes a creation full of sinful men and women. But even over and above that, we see that God is still bringing about His eternal purposes and none can stay His hand. 
No one can thwart his will. No one can stop him from accomplishing that which he desires to accomplish. And that which he will accomplish. And so all scripture is one. And that brings us to Isaiah 40. All of these truths that we've discussed. And as we consider life in general, the ebbs and flows of life. As we consider that even our nation today, many of us would say, America, once a great nation, look where we're at now. And a lot of us have deep emotions and thoughts about that. We've seen nations rise and nations fall. We've seen wars be won. We've seen wars be lost. And maybe we've asked ourselves, I wish... I wish I could find one thing that was just constant. I wish I could find one thing that I could just depend on. I wish I could find one thing that was the same always and one thing that I could just rest my hope in. Isaiah 40 verse 6. A voice says cry. And I said what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. God has spoken. And He will accomplish that which He has said. God has spoken and it will surely come to pass. God has spoken and it is true. And we can rest in that. We can find hope in that. But rest assured, if we place our hope in anything of this world, if we place our hope in ourselves, if we place hope or confidence in any other thing apart from God and His Word, it'll fade, it'll wither, and any hope or confidence that we thought we had will be stripped away from us. But if our hope and our confidence is in Christ, who is the very word of God. Then our hope and our confidence is sure. And it is steadfast. And it is immovable. We've covered 11 chapters in Genesis so far. And I pray. That our understanding and our wisdom has been strengthened and it has, and it has grown. But if we are not considering these truths and considering what it means for us, if we are not applying these truths and living these truths out, if we are not living our lives with the, <clears throat> with the acknowledgement that we, in and of ourselves, were just sinful human beings. That left to our own devices, there'd be no hope of salvation and no hope of a right standing before God. That from the beginning... Truth testifies that man will fall short. While also understanding that from the beginning. Truth testifies that God alone is God. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That his plans cannot be thwarted or hindered or stopped. That he never has to change plans. He never has to reassess the situation. That he alone is God. That He is a just God that will punish sin. But also a gracious and a merciful God who forgives sin 
and redeems through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we don't go out and live our lives as if we truly understand and believe that this God, this one true God of all creation, He exists, He is real, He is worthy to be worshipped, He is worthy to be obeyed. And if we don't go out and live as those who are just as sinful as anybody else, but those who have been redeemed and purchased through the blood of the Son, and that deserving death we have received eternal life, if we don't go out there and live in such a way that displays that we exist for His glory, that all of our lives is a sacrifice to Him, that we will worship Him, and we will live for Him with all that we have, because He is the only reason that we live, then we are yet still falling short. If we don't go out there and live our lives in such a way that says, God is truth and His Word is all that will endure forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. And He has given us that testament. He has given us that revelation of Himself right here. To know Him. To walk in His statutes. To be obedient. We claim to know Him. Do we live our lives as a testimony that shows and gives proof that we have come to be known by the living and the true God through the salvation of His Son? Do we live our lives in that way? May we challenge ourselves with that. May we respond to any conviction that God may grant to us. May we respond to that with repentance and turning away from that. And may we set our hearts and minds on things above. As we go back out into the world and next week as we pick up and we begin to study the, the beautiful and the miraculous call of Abraham that births a nation and from that line comes our Savior. Let us be mindful of these things. God is sovereign. He is just and He is gracious. God is faithful. Mankind, all that we bring to the table is sin. But through redemption, we may be used by God to glorify His name. To preach and proclaim the truth to others. To preach and proclaim the gospel so that others may be brought in as well. You say all of this connected to Genesis 1 through 11. Yeah. Because all scripture is one. All scripture is united. All scripture is one testimony and revelation of God and who he is and his plan and his work in all of creation. Let's close in a word of prayer.